Welcome to City on a Hill Church, Forest Hills podcast. We exist to lead people to love, trust, and follow Jesus in everyday life. We're glad you're here, and thanks for listening. More information on the life and mission of City on a Hill Church can be found at coahforesthills.org. We've lived in Boston for almost six years now, which is crazy to think that one of my, my youngest child has almost lived here longer than she lived elsewhere. And uh, we love Boston. I, I plan to be buried here. I plan to you know, pastor this church, God willing, until I retire and see lots of churches planted. Like that, that's my desire to be here. Um, and one of the reasons I love Boston is I love history. I've always loved history in a different life. I think I could be a history professor. I could be a church history professor. Um, I would love that with my, my pipe. And I would just love that. I just imagine that's what all a church history professors do, sit there and smoke a pipe. Um, uh, I would love to, to do that. And, and the first time that we came to Boston, we got to see parts of the Freedom Trail. And I was blown away because all of these images that I had seen or read about, I got to see with my own eyes. I got to see uh, you know, the old state house where you know, it's weird to you know, go to the orange line and get off at state and realize people were massacred right above you. It's like, that's a weird thing to think about. Um, it's re- it was really cool to go to the, uh, to the North End and see Paul Revere's house, which is about the size of that pew. Um, it was really cool to go to um, the Old North Church and to, and to think about how Paul Revere would have gone there and he would have said, you know, one if by, anybody? Land, two if by, sea. And so that was just a, I loved that. And so, I, and so one thing I love to do as a history buff is to just give you little nuggets. Like, did you know? My, I, when my kids were little, I told them they can only give me two did you knows a day uh, because I would get them in, just incessantly. Um, but I wanted you to know that, did you know that Paul Revere wasn't alone on that night? He had someone with him. In fact, he was one of many freedom riders. And this is actually one reason I believe celebrating Black History Month is important because we can recognize the forgotten contributions of black Americans and black Christians to both America and to the church. And there was a man named Wentworth Cheswell who was with Paul Revere that night and rode with him north and went all the way to Exeter and rallied 400 troops because the British were coming. So it's important that we remember that, important that we remember uh, historical elements like that, but also thinking about why would Paul Revere and why would Wentworth Cheswell risk their lives to do this? They were risking their lives riding through, potentially running into the British forces. Why would they risk it? Because the message they had to tell was worth risking your life for. And as we come to the end of John 7, we see that Jesus is about to tell a message that was worth risking his life for. We see that this is the last day of the feast, of the great day, and Jesus stood up and cried out. And now this is an important detail that Jesus is coming at the end of the feast, because if you look back at the last week's text, we saw that the Pharisees were ready to arrest Jesus. They were ready to kill Jesus, execute him because of what he was saying, because he was declaring and claiming to be God. And he knew that it was not his time to die. It was not his time to go to the cross. So he's laying low. He's avoiding the pressure. And all of a sudden here, he stands up, he cries out something. And this is really important because the typical posture of a Jewish teacher or rabbi was to sit. They would sit before people. People would come before them. That was the posture. It's much different than today where we imagine someone standing, whether it's for a sermon or for a TED talk. 
And he, he stands up and he cries out and there's this passionate message that everyone needs to hear that he has to preach. And it's a little bit like what Martin Lloyd-Jones, the famous British pastor once said, he said that preaching is like, is logic on fire. That there was a fire inside of his bones, something that had to be said, something that was worth risking his life over. And to understand why Jesus had to get this message off of his chest, you need to understand the context of the passage. We are coming to the end of the Feast of the Booths. We covered part of this last week that the Feast of the Booths or the Feast of the Tabernacles was one of three historic Jewish festivals where they would gather together each year. And this was by far the most popular. People would come together and for a week, they would spend time in a tent uh, out in the wilderness uh, being reminded of how God had provided for them in the past. Now, if you were within 15 miles of Jerusalem and you were a male, you had to go. It was compulsory. You were, it was required that you go to this festival. But many people all across Israel, man and woman, would come for this incredible and beautiful festival. And part of this festival, one of the highlights, was a daily water ritual. And what would happen is the priest would take a golden pitcher and he would march down to the pool of Siloam. And he would put water into that pitcher and the people would be a procession with him and they would watch him as he did this. And as he would come back, they would sing Psalm 113 through 118. And they would be holding in their hand, in their right hand, which what was called a, a lulab, which was willow and myrtle twigs tied by a palm. And in their left hand, they would hold citrus fruit. And as he would come with that pitcher of water, they would cry out three times, give thanks to the Lord. And the priest would circle the altar and he would pour that water into one bowl and they'd pour wine into another bowl as an offering to God. And in fact, on the seventh day, he would circle seven times to represent what God did at Jericho as the people circled around Jericho seven times and the walls fell down. This was a prayer. It was a prayer, first of all, of remembrance. They remember God's past faithfulness in the desert as the people of Israel, as Exodus 17 tells us, that they were delivered from slavery in Egypt, delivered from captivity in Egypt. And they're out in the middle of nowhere and they're thirsty and they're like, why did God bring us out? It was better in Egypt. We could at least eat and drink something, even if we were under captivity. And the people are grumbling against Moses. They're grumbling against God. And God tells Moses, strike the rock, and when you strike the rock, water is going to flow from the rock. One little beautiful detail is that the presence of God was standing on the rock. And so as they struck, the, he struck the rock, he struck, struck God, a, a picture of the cross to come where water would flow from, from God being stricken for our sins. And we see that this is among countless Old Testament passages that describe the life that God promises you and I as being given water, being given water. And the people would remember these verses and they would sing a verse like Isaiah 12, 3, which says, with joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. So it's a, it's a prayer of remembrance. Secondly, it's a prayer for provision. They would pray for rain for the coming year for their crops. And it was also a prayer for future hope. They tied it to when the Messiah would come and provide satisfaction forever. And the water rite was said to be such a sight that the Jewish Mishnah, which was really sort of interpretations of the Bible or the Old Testament said, one note was this, that he that has never seen the joy of the water drawing has never in his life seen joy. 
everyone who is coming to the end of the Feast of Booths has one thing on their mind, it's water. And we reach the end, we reach the eighth day, the great day, it's like the, the closing ceremony. And so when Jesus says the words, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink, every head would have whipped around immediately and looked at Jesus. Every head would have known exactly what Jesus was trying to say. Our community group had the opportunity to serve with Young Lives this past Tuesday. We had an incredible time. Uh, we, uh, we got together. There were uh, like 21 kids. We had a blast. Don't let that scare you. We had a blast. They were so much fun. But many of these children spoke Spanish only. And we're sitting there, we're trying to figure out what do we, what do, we do to, to get them to get along? And some of them were starting to fight over some toys. And, and, and I said, okay, well, does anyone know Spanish? And we're like, well, not really. And so I said, well, let's look up the word for share in Spanish. And we looked up the word parte. And so Amy says, parte, and every head in the room whipped around. Every kid goes, ooh, my mom has told me that. What Jesus is saying here is everyone would have, would have understood his words. He's saying, I'm the one who gives living water. I'm the only one who satisfies your past, present, and future hopes. I'm the fulfillment of everything that you've been celebrating and everything that you've been waiting for. And that is just as true for you and I. Jesus is the one who promises to satisfy us. And so the passage this morning, Jesus' words reveal three truths for you and I today. Number one is that everyone is thirsty. Everyone is thirsty. If you look at the uh, end of verse uh, 37, it says, if anyone thirsts. Now the word if there is a little bit understated. It's like asking if a teenager is hungry. Of course he's hungry. Um, my, my daughter has a friend who's about 6'6", well over 300 pounds. And when he comes to our house, we just assume he's hungry because he is. And uh, I remember one time we gave him a couple of things and Amy handed him like a little cutie orange and it looked like a walnut in his hands. So she just started loading food into his hands because of course he's hungry. And when, when the question's asked or the, it's an invitation, you know, are you hungry? Of course. Are you thirsty? Yes. It's an invitation because purely on a biological level, we know we're thirsty. You're, women are supposed to drink 72 ounces of water a day. Men are supposed to drink 104 ounces of water a day. Now, how many of us actually do that? Well, some of you got the water bottles marked. Yeah, most of us don't. Um, so there you go. She, Heather was thirsty, Matt knew it. So what timing uh, on that? Um, Harvard Medical uh, said that they were supposed to have this much water. Uh, I, I had a, a friend once who was a medical professional and she just never drank water. And she, has, she said that she got it from the Diet Mountain Dew she drank. And I'm like, you shouldn't be a medical professional. Um, we're all thirsty. So show of hands, how many of you ha ha once had a Nalgene bottle? Okay. How many of you had a Hydro Flask? How many of you have a Stanley? How many of you feel called out right now? Okay. We're thirsty people. Jesus knows that we're thirsty. He knows that we get physically thirsty, but he also knows that we get spiritually thirsty. And the reason he knows that is that he created us. Genesis 1, parts of 26, 27, and 28 tell us that God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. So God created man in his own image and the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth in and subdue it. We are made in the image of God, which we know to mean that we have value and worth and dignity. So anyone who is breathing, male or female, adult or child has inherent value in God. 
We're created that way. But what that also means is that because God created you, he knows you. He knows you inside and out. He knows what makes you, you. He knows what makes you tick. He knows what you desire. And he knows that in the command to be fruitful, he's going to cause you to flourish because he's the one who created you. And so every human needs to be known. Every human needs to be loved. Every human needs a purpose because God created us to relate to him and to flourish in him. And like water is needed for a plant, our souls need the Lord. This thirst spiritually, existentially, this inner desire to be loved and known and have a purpose and meaning means that we are designed to thirst after God and find satisfaction in Him, and that's where real flourishing comes from. Thirst is meant to be satisfied, and when you get thirsty physically, it's a sign that you have a deeper need. Physically, your body will start to give you signals if you're thirsty. Uh, early in our marriage, Amy and I moved to Colorado to do, to do ministry. And one of the things we were told, because where we live was at 7,000 feet above sea level in the mountains, they said, drink water constantly. And I was like 24 and stupid and didn't. And the altitude killed me because on day two, I got a violent reminder that I needed to drink some water. I had the worst headache that I've ever had in my life. And in the same way, spiritually, each of us thirsts. Each of us wants to be happy and truly deeply satisfied. And we feel the pain when we're not. And sometimes we're violently reminded that the other sources of joy and satisfaction that we run after don't actually satisfy us and we feel it. Everyone is looking to be satisfied because everyone is thirsty. And we see that from every person in this text. In verse 40, we see that the crowd, even though they are divided, are looking for satisfaction for their thirst in different ways. It says in verse 40 that some said, this really is the prophet. This really is the one who was promised by Moses. Deuteronomy 18 says that, and the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. What, what does a prophet give? A prophet gives wisdom, gives words to follow, direction to live by. And that's probably why they thought this really is the prophet because they heard the words that Jesus just spoke and they're thinking, this, this is what we've been waiting for. We're, we're, they're so captivated by his words that they look to the wisdom that Jesus would provide as the remedy to their thirst. And you and I can do the same thing when it comes to wisdom. If I just know enough, if I just learn enough, some of you are in school right now and you're drinking in the promises of knowledge. And look, I'm not anti-intellectual, but we can look to the classroom, we can look to books, you can look to industry to satisfy a thirst to be known, loved, and enough. And you can even look to Jesus this way. Sometimes we look to Jesus, not as Lord, not as the source of life, but we look to him for a little nugget. We look to Jesus for a little sip of satisfaction that if you can just give me some teaching, if you can just give me some morals, if you can just give me a little bit of direction, I can kind of be satisfied on my own. Some of them, it says in verse 41, think that this is the Christ. 
Some of them think this is the Messiah who's come to liberate them. And if you've been with us for a little while in John, you've noticed that a, a theme among the people when they think that Jesus is the Messiah is not that he's the suffering servant of Isaiah, not that he's the one who's coming to lay his life down for sinners like you and I, but that he's a political savior, much more like a presidential candidate than the Jesus who goes to the cross. They're looking for security. They're, they're looking for a God who can get them out of their jam. And it's easy to look to God and say, if you could just get me through this circumstance, I'd be satisfied. If you can just give me a little more security and a little more safety and a little more comfort, then I, that's the water that I need for my soul. We also see that the officers who are there to arrest Jesus are looking for something, some way to be satisfied. It says in verse 42, or at the end of verse 41, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Some of the people um, were a little confused about where Jesus came from. Uh, they thought that he was from Galilee, which by the way is like saying that someone's from a backwoods town, uh, like no one smart or successful comes from a place like that. I don't know if you know somewhere like that from where you grew up or if you're from that place, you don't have to say right now, uh, but they, they, they were thinking he can't possibly be from there, not realizing that Jesus was born in Bethlehem and, and fulfilled the promise of the scriptures that the Messiah would come from Bethlehem. And so we see, so there was division among the people. And so these officers are sent to arrest Jesus. They have three to five days, according to the last passage, that, uh, to, to actually arrest him. And you're wondering why, what was taking so long? What, what caused them to, to, to wait? The crowd is obviously split. They're obviously split on Jesus. One group thinks he's a prophet. Another group thinks he's the Messiah. Another group thinks he's crazy. And it's like during COVID, I had a neighbor who worked for Boston Public Schools and he, worked, he was one of the ones making the decision about whether to go back or not. And I said, hey, hey Stephen, what, what are you gonna do? And he said, well, we did a survey and one third of the people wanna go back now. One third of the people wanna go back hybrid and one third of the people never wanna go back. I'm like, you have a losing decision to make. That's what the officers are facing. They're facing this losing decision, but also they're not trained military leaders. These are Levites. These are priests. These are the equivalent of Bible college students serving as campus security. They're not even given a gun. They're making minimum wage. Like these are not you know, well-trained policemen or military. These are people who are actually after truth. They're truth seekers. And we see in verse 46, the reason that they didn't arrest him is they forgot their job. They're, no one has ever spoke like this man. There's something about him that captivated them that they lost sight of their job. And now they're going to the Pharisees and thinking, man, we gotta like play, play paper, rock, scissors to figure out who's gonna tell them that we messed up. They're seeking truth. But what about the religious leaders? What are they looking to satisfy their souls with? It's power. What happens to people who lose power? They, they lash out. They, they lash out at the officers and say, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? And they become irrational and actually show their contempt in verse 52, where they say they replied are you, to Nicodemus, are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. They were so irrational, they'd forgotten that prophets like Jonah and Nahum had come from Galilee and that also God can raise up prophets from wherever he wants to. They see their influence slipping, their threat to their authority and their position. And they're really just longing for thirst and, and, and for the satisfaction of their thirst somewhere they can't be satisfied. 
So whether it's wisdom or security or truth or power or relationships or money or comfort, all of us are thirsty. We're longing to be satisfied and we're looking for it in places that never actually do. Jackie O'Perry says this about what God promises versus what our hearts often run after. She says that, I think if you tapped into the being of God as good, as faithful, as accurate, as wise, as eternal, as self-existing, as all the things that he is in reality, and then you compare that to what you tend to love more than him, then you start to see I'm chasing after broken cisterns that can't even give me what I need when God has positioned himself or revealed himself to me as living water. What are broken cisterns? Jeremiah the prophet described them as what the people of God would go to. A broken cistern would be a well that could no longer provide water. And he talked about how the people would tend to give up the living water, the all-satisfying joy of God for broken sources that can't give them what they long for. What are you looking to, to satisfy your thirst that only God can fulfill? The second beautiful truth is that everyone can be satisfied. The end of verse 37 says, let him come to me and drink. If you are thirsty, which we all are, there's an invitation for you to come to Jesus and be truly satisfied. Now, before we get into how Jesus satisfies us, I wanna make a note on who is actually able to come to Jesus. There's an indictment on the Pharisees here in verses 47 through 49. We've already said that they think that if you believe in this Jesus, you've been deceived because none of the important people have actually believed in him. But verse 49, this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. The Pharisees believed that if none of the professionals trusted in Jesus, he wasn't worth believing in because they despised common people. They despised them because they thought as religious leaders, they knew more than them. They kept the law better than them. And they would tend to avoid common people. They would talk down to them. And it was definitely a class system when it came to following the Lord. And this is why I love the idea of, of a, being a congregation, because the expectation is that you can know and learn the Bible. Like you can pick up the Bible any given day of the week because you have the Holy Spirit within you and read the scriptures and God speak to you. You don't need me as a mediator between you and you and God. I, I come each week, our elders come each week and we teach the Bible to give you a theological vision, but the Lord works in you. And we can read the Bible for ourselves and we see God's heart for, for the least and the lost here because water tends to fill the lowest places first. And Christianity is the only religion that invites the lowly, the broken and the foolish as its strategy. Isn't that amazing to think about it? That is, that is God's strategy. First Corinthians one, for consider your calling brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. God doesn't just tolerate or begrudgingly invite the lowly. He invites them on purpose. And this is who Jesus goes after. And an invitation into God's kingdom, invitation to drink deeply of Jesus is not based on your status. It's not based on how much money you bring. It's not based on your pedigree. It's based on grace. 
And what happens through the grace of God is each of us is elevated to the honored status as children of God. But we also see that Jesus invites those who think they have it all together by showing you that you actually don't. In Nicodemus, we see in verse 50 and 51, we see a person who's in process. We see a very religious person who's realizing that there's some emptiness on the inside. You got to remember if you were with us in chapter three, uh, that Nicodemus comes to Jesus in the middle of the night. And as you look at the religious leaders in this text, you kind of get why. They were pretty judgmental. Um, they, were, they were pretty horrible people. And he goes to Jesus and he begins to see that his outer goodness can't cover his inner emptiness. His outer goodness can't cover his inner emptiness. And he says in verse 51, this little blip of faith, he says, does our law, law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? He's considering Jesus because he realizes that his outward attempts to fill himself have, have done nothing to fill him. And this is where some of you are right now. You do a really good job of covering up the fact that you're dry on the inside. And you've done a good job of, of, of moral performance on the outside, that you're a really good person. You're, you're really good at your job and you find your identity there. You, you, you take a lot of pride in being a good parent or a good spouse or a good friend or all the time that you volunteer. But if you're really honest, you're dry on the inside. You need Jesus to fill you. And this is how Jesus does. This is how Jesus satisfies. Verse 38, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Jesus satisfies you that when you believe, God does something in you and God changes you and water or life begins to flow out of you. Now, the word scripture here is likely not a direct quote. It's sort of how you read a book and you summarize it and say, like, this is the big main idea. Um, by the way, I, I realize I'm getting old because I started reading Tom Clancy novels. I think that's a sign that you're getting older. Um, I'm reading novels about espionage and war and things like that. And, and I can say from reading so far that the point, main emphasis of all of these novels is that Jack Ryan is a, an honest man of integrity, a true patriot. There's no line in some of all fears that says that. And while there may be no line specifically that says this, the whole emphasis of the Bible is that God has to change you and fill you from the inside out. But there is one passage that I think captures the idea of what Jesus is doing here. In Nehemiah chapter eight, the people of God have been in exile for, for 70 years. They're finally coming back into the promised land. Nehemiah is rebuilding the city. Ezra has helped them remember the law. And they rediscover the law, rediscover the Bible, and they begin to read it, and they begin to celebrate and remember God's grace. And then they come across the Feast of Booths, and they remember God's past faithfulness. They reinstitute this. And then at the end of the story in Nehemiah 9, verse 20, it says, you gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. He ties the idea of the water to the spirit, and that's what Jesus does here. Now this he said about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. The spirit satisfies you like someone who's dying of thirst. Now, if you notice the end of verse 39, something curious, it says, for as yet the spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Now the spirit was around in the Old Testament. 
And we saw the work of the Spirit hovering over water at creation. We saw the Spirit going with them as a, a cloud during the day and a pillar of fire at night. We saw the Spirit working through people like Moses and giving them the law or through the anointed king in David. But every person did not have the Spirit in the same way. And we see that Jesus is describing a day coming when everyone who trusted him would. And it comes through him being glorified. And what would happen is that Jesus is going to go to the cross and Jesus is going to pay for sin once and for all to make us right for God, to make our hearts clean, a place that the spirit could live. And as he does this and he raises again, he promises in John 14 and 16, which we'll cover down the road about sending the spirit as our helper, helper to remind us of everything that God has done for us. And we see in Acts chapter two that the spirit falls upon everyone and fulfills Joel's prophecy that sons and daughters would prophesy about God. And what we see Jesus saying here is that you haven't seen anything yet. It's as St. Augustine, the great African bishop said, Jesus gives the Holy Spirit in satisfying abundance. And he does this to people who are weary. He gives this to people who are heavy laden. And Jesus invites you to himself through the work of the Spirit. And my question for you this morning is, aren't you exhausted from trying to quench your thirst any other way? Aren't you exhausted from trying to get little sips of water out of the bottom of that canteen? And that's honestly more infuriating. If you ever watch a movie where someone's trying to get water out of a canteen, it's just one little drop. It's like, I'd rather just die now. That's what it's like when we run elsewhere, but Jesus promises to completely satisfy you. He's the source and you receive life that never ends. But this isn't just for you. The third truth is that everyone is meant to bless others. This isn't just a blessing you receive. It's not just water for your soul or life for your soul, but it's water that's meant to flow out to other people and bring life as those who freely received life. Alistair Begg uh, said about this, he said that the Dead Sea was very close to Jerusalem and it was called the Dead Sea because it was just that, it was dead water. The water didn't move. And the Jordan River would feed the Dead Sea, but the water would never go anywhere else. And it was stagnant, lifeless water that flowed nowhere else. And that's how many Christians live. We receive, but we don't pour back out. We receive life, but we don't pour back out because we believe somehow that the life that Jesus offers us is scarce. But it's only through pouring ourselves out that you'll actually receive more of his presence in a tangible and experiential way. In a lot of ways, you are like this sponge. And without water going, it's a little smiley face, it's happy for this morning. And without water entering the sponge, you're dry. And what many of us do as Christians is we fill ourselves up with this water and we're just full of water. And then there's going to be a point where there's actually no more ability for the sponge to take on any more water. I can dip it in here as much as I want to. I can come to church as much as I want to. I can read my Bible as much as I want to. I can, I can, I can do all these things and, and, and I'm just going to fill up to a certain point. But what happens is, is you actually have to squeeze out this, I'm making their floor wet, squeeze out this sponge in order to receive a little more. And it's not that you get saved again or anything like that. But if you want the tangible presence of God in your life, you're going to have to start serving other people. You're going to have to get in community with other people and begin to bear their burdens. You're going to have to begin 
receiving what the life you've received from Jesus and begin to share those evidences of God's grace with other people. And what begins to happen as you do that is the Lord fills you with more and more of his presence and you experience more and more of the life that he promises through his spirit. And as he does that, he fills us back up and we see that he does this because Christ poured himself out for your sake on the cross and he was one with the father, never lacking anything. As we close, just a few questions. First of all, do you see that you're thirsty? That's the first step. You have to see you have a need. Secondly, will you admit that you're empty and only Jesus can fulfill you? And then lastly, will you turn to Jesus to satisfy you? Nicodemus may be like some of you. He is someone who's on the way, who's figuring it out, he's dipping his toes in the water and, and wondering if Jesus really is the living water that will satisfy him forever. Make today the day that you come to Jesus and are satisfied, that you give up all the broken cisterns and come to Jesus and drink deeply and receive the life that you really want. Let's pray.